Well, welcome back, guys. How are you? Well, I'm alive. Spring has come. Can't beat that. What about you, Marcos? Uh, it's it's good. I just wish the um, the weather would stop using lottery numbers for its uh, for the temperatures of the day. But other than that, <laughs> going great. I'm still fighting off the uh, the jet lag from the trip back over. Oh man. Yeah, I, my sleep schedule is completely off, so who knows? <laughs> we'll see what happens. I, I'm looking forward to being over there full time. So, um, I know you guys were talking about a pretty interesting subject right before we started recording uh, the various different councils, and tonight we were going to talk about the canon of scripture. Um, and I know that that all three of us have gotten into some interesting conversations when it comes to that. So where do you guys want to start? Well, I want to start by framing this properly. See, there are only two possibilities. One is a bunch of musty old men met in a smoke-filled room in Rome and dictated the uh, the canon right then and there. Or Jesus gave us the Bible whole and entire package right there in the King's English. There, there's nothing in between those possibilities. And since tobacco smoking wasn't a thing back then, clearly it can't be the smoke-filled room. So Jesus gave us the King James, so why are we even talking about this? <laughs> the necessary asterisk, I am joking. And I think most people, when you put it that way, they're like, okay, yeah, no, that's not what happened. But a lot of us act like it, don't we? Even some Catholics just kind of like, oh, Jesus gave us a book. Well, maybe in a roundabout way, sure, but it uh, wasn't quite that simple. So what are you? Uh, what are your thoughts as, as far as like what we consider the Bible today? We'll just start with that. I mean, we've got how many different versions of the canon of scripture now? So we've got the Protestant version that has been sanitized of the deuterocanonical books that they call the Apocrypha. And then, of course, we have the Catholic Bible, the Peshitta in the, um, the Syriac tradition is a kind of a cool little book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there's the Orthodox, and I believe that, don't the cops, the Coptic The cops have it additional books to it like yeah more especially than when you get into Tewahedo orthodoxy in ethiopia i think they have the most expansive canon mm-hmm. um I, I think they just grabbed anything they could get their hands on and said yeah <laughs> probably good enough so uh let's take a look at the actual books right so when i was growing up we learned the books of the Bible, the Old Testament, New Testament. There are 66 books because one of the reasons that was given to me was because there's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. So this is just, you know, the the uh, the way God's telling us that this is true, which is not <laughs> Because quite... God gave us chapter divisions. Exactly. Um, <laughs> somebody actually said that to me one time and I never really believed it. And, and I don't think that they were actually serious, but it, it's stuff like that that you hear that you kind of believe as a kid. And I think that's how a lot of the um, people come into, uh, I don't want to say heresy, but they'll, they'll get into just incorrect thinking. 
Um, but can we kind of talk about maybe where this division started first? Do you think it was in the early church that we had this problem, or do you think it's actually later towards Trent? Well, it kind of depends on what you mean by this problem. And if you're talking about competing lists of books, um, that actually goes back before Christianity itself. Um, you look at the Judaism of Jesus's time, some people disagreed on what books belonged in their scriptures and you know, what ones didn't. Um, so if you were a Greek-speaking Jew of the diaspora, usually it's fairly cut and dry. The books of the, of the scriptures were the ones that were in the Septuagint translation that came out of Alexandria. And that gave you, I believe, 46 books. I, I may be off by one and or two in one direction or another. But because you had a single translation done as a body, it was fairly straightforward. Among the Jews of the Levant, it was a little trickier. Uh, some accepted the books that we Catholics know as the Deuterocanon. Some did not. And some, some have pointed, in fact, to some events in the Gospels, maybe pointing to some divisions. Uh, a lot of us may know there's a time that Jesus is confronted by the Sadducees about us, you know, what happens if a woman marries a man, then he dies, and then she marries his brother to raise children for him, and then he dies, and so on down the line, some absurd number of brothers. And a lot of our Protestant brothers and sisters read that story. They're like, well, that's an absurd story. They're just making up random stuff. Um, the thing is, actually, I believe that's referring to the book of Tobit, and some have read into this that this is the Sadducees who probably rejected those books saying, hey, here's this thing that you think, Jesus, is acceptable uh, as part of Scripture, this ridiculous story. Well, tell me what you make of it when they all go and, and are resurrected. But the Sadducees didn't believe what happened. Um, so some people have read that into that, that Jesus and his followers accepted Tobit and the Sadducees did not. And so that was part of the, the context for that story. Um, but naturally, when Christianity gets started, it's a religion with a lot of emphasis on the scriptures, both the Jewish scriptures and the things that are written by the apostles. And then, well, which ones count as actually being scripture? It, it was actually much more controversial than a lot of people realize. I know a lot of people are like, oh, the contents of scripture are obvious. It took a few centuries before we were all on board for the same list for the New Testament. Uh, I mean, today we take for granted, oh, yeah, it's obviously these books. That was not obvious for a, quite a while. Oh, yeah. And big one, massive one, the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse of St. John. That one, like, that was up last minute. And finally, everybody's like, okay, fine. If people don't read it crazy, it's okay. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll consider it part of Scripture. I find it kind of interesting. Like, when I've done some study, um, the big difference between most Protestant uh, translations and the Catholic translation is that we lean towards Jerome's translation of the Septuagint. Whereas the Protestant churches typically lean towards the Masoretic texts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, the Septuagint is older than the Masoretic text. 
Right. So we might have to quickly outline what we mean by those terms. You know, what, what, what's Septuagint? What's Masoretic? So the Septuagint, of course, is going to be the Greek Old Testament, basically. Uh, Ptolemy, if I remember correctly, commissioned that to be um, translated over for the Greeks. I'm not quite sure why, um, but that's my I, understanding. I've heard a number of origin stories, but I mean, having one of the Ptolemies sponsor it actually wouldn't be that shocking they were fairly major sponsors of that kind of thing but i've heard all kinds of alternate stories but yeah a bunch of rabbis got together in alexandria and made a greek translation because you've got a bunch of jews in the greek-speaking world they need a copy of the scriptures in greek so they got one uh basically aristius um wrote a letter supposedly this is the, the story is that uh, Ptolemy II Philadelphus um, roughly had 70-ish Jewish scholars, maybe 72, um, representing the different 12 tribes of Israel, supposedly to do this. Um, but this is basically what we're handed, is from the Alexandrian Jews, a complete translation there. The Masoretic texts, they don't really have like a, a hard, this hard date of when they were completely canonized. In fact, scripture is seen to be much more fluid around those times, which is an interesting concept when you think about it. Um, rabbinical Judaism kind of took over completely, for the most part, in, in, in 70 AD, because you still had the, the Jewish temple there for a while after Christ's death. And that's when you started seeing the break between the, I believe it was the Karaite Jews and the rabbinical Jews, the two different schools of thought. And from there, you know, you, you see this, this thing kind of take off. And here's, here's the problem with a lot of ancient dialogue. We really hear it from the majority or from mm-hmm. the winners. So the issue that you run into with the, the Masoretic text is there's no hard date, and it's very much so fluid during this time. So it's more than likely that Jesus would have used the Septuagint than these Masoretic texts. Yeah, that's a concept a lot of people today, I'm, ourselves included a lot of the time, have, have trouble with the idea of Scripture being something that's kind of fluid and in development rather than something that's set in stone and handed to you complete and entire. But, I mean, I, if you want to understand it, just think back. You know, imagine you're in Old Testament times and, you know, one of the prophets is is speaking and his words are being recorded. Well, you know, you are living in the midst of Scripture being formed. Right. And that's true for a long time that that's what's going on. It's actually kind of the innovation um, a couple of centuries into the church era that you get this idea of, scripture being closed and it being done um which yeah you know again we take that for granted but for quite a while the assumption was exactly the opposite apart from the book of revelation the the apostles really didn't leave us any type of scripture like when you take a look at paul's writings for example of course he wrote the majority of the the new testament um by number his letters nowhere in them state that they are scripture. 
Yeah, that's one of the interesting points is, you know, what's your starting point for how you determine what is scripture? And you have, you know, clearly important men, like the apostles obviously were very important men sent by God, driven by the Holy Spirit. Okay, is everything they write, therefore, scripture equal to the Old Testament? Um, you know, like like Paul, Paul frequently uh, makes claims of authority establishing that he is an apostle. But he doesn't seem to do that for his writings being scripture. Now, we do have some quotes uh, from the one of the epistles of Peter that refer to Paul's writings as being mm -hmm. in some way scriptural. But it's kind of curious. You have to go to another source for that claim. I think you have some other things in the New Testament where it's like, well, I mean, was it wasn't even the intention of the author for them to be treated as scripture. Um, I mean, you can make the case for the Gospels, but then again, you look at some of the Gospels, like Luke is apparently writing for a patron. Well, that's kind of a weird thing for Scripture. And so, you know, eventually people came into agreement on these things, but it was fluid for a long time and mm -hmm. not nearly as clear as we take for granted today. You know, I know that with... Uh, specifically, like the reforms, the reformers, they want to say, or the reformed churches, I should say, they'd like to say that we didn't have a canon of scripture with the Catholic Church until the Council of Trent, um, yeah. because there was a dogmatic statement that was made at that point. Um, <laughs> it's important to understand the purpose of councils. Do either one of you want to talk about the actual purpose of a council? Right. That, this is a confusion that all three of us run into all the time. So when the church has a council, generally speaking, the purpose of a council is not to invent anything. We are not saying, hey, here's this question we haven't considered anymore. Let's get all our best people, most important people together, and they will come up with an answer that nobody had answered before and then we'll move forward from there and we'll just pretend that's equal to everything else now what you're looking at generally is a confirmation of what was already believed in practice or a refining or a definition of something that was already there but not as well defined so when you see something like the council of trent 16th century talking the 1540s and 50s here primarily put together a list of books that is like, this is the final list of the canon. That's not just like saying, hey, the canon was wide open in the up in the air until this point. That was kind of a point of saying, well, this has been brought into question. This needs to be formally defined at the highest levels of authority. So here we are, ecumenical council, we're calling it, it is this. But they weren't the first ones to do that. The list they came up with um, had been established by councils over a thousand years earlier mm -hmm. or ecumenical councils. But that doesn't mean as much as some people want to make it mean. Um, ecumenical councils, their bindingness has to do with dogmatic statements and so on. Um, that doesn't mean that therefore more regional councils aren't reflecting the faith and practice of the times. Um, so I, I know, Eddie, you've been reading up more on the councils that were involved in the formation of the canon, and you can confirm it's well over a thousand years before Trent, and it's the same lists. Yeah, I mean, specifically, like, you look at the councils of Rome, the councils of, the council of Rome, I'm sorry, and the councils of Carthage, 
Carthage was more definitive, um, but all the texts basically matched that. And, and, mm-hmm. and the big one was the last book to really be added as a definitive book was the book of Revelation, which I think is kind of funny considering, you know, in order, it's the last book that's added. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, when, when you look at this, of course, people argue, well, the Council of Rome was not an ecumenical council. So that's not, you know, dogmatic, quote unquote. And the same thing with the councils of Carthage. Well, when these councils are writing letters to other major Christian hubs saying, hey, this is the canon of scripture that we all agree on. We're going to send this over to you so you can take a look at it too. And then you start sending letters around. You're starting to see a certain, I guess, just formation of, of a, a solid canon. And for a thousand years, this wasn't questioned. The other really funny thing is during the Great Schism, about five, six hundred years later, the Orthodox took the same canon of scripture with them. But nobody questions that. That they had that. Where did they get it? Mm-hmm. They got it from us. Yeah, that's an important challenge I, I level at a lot of people who say, oh, these things... You know, whatever you want it to be, you know, they were made up in the Middle Ages, or they were made up at Trent, or they were made up during the Counter-Reformation period, or, or whatever they mm-hmm. want to If it's anything after 1054, I love the vast majority of the time, I can point to the Orthodox, like, these guys during that time hated our guts. And you go to some corners of the internet, they still hate our guts. Um, <laughs> they would not have embraced this after the schism because oh some latin said so or some some pope said so or whatever no these are reflective of ancient practice ancient belief that wasn't just made up later and everybody got on board because reasons now people got on board because this was their practice and their faith i mean you you look at the councils of carthage the council of rome that eddie was talking about we consider them regional councils uh, because of how they were held, but these were not just like one place dictating to the rest of the church. They had input from all kinds of other uh, parts of the church. I believe part of the instigation for having these was that the churches in Rome and in Antioch and in Alexandria in particular uh, wanted to take the list of books they used in their worship during their liturgy and they wanted to make sure that their lists agreed and that they would have a list that all three of them can use. And, you know, back in the day, if those three churches agreed on something, <laughs> I, they, they pretty much spoke for everybody when you put them together, because that's not just one small group of people. That is the West. That is Egypt, which was the intellectual center for Christianity many times. That is you know, Greek Christianity represented by Antioch and many others. So... <laughs> Yeah, this is the church as a whole coming together and coming to conclusions. So whether or not it has the legal or dogmatic status of the ecumenical council isn't the point. The point is that this this is an attestation to what everybody was able to come together on. And, you know, that, that does count for something. Mm-hmm. So just oddly enough, like in the Peshitta, uh, which is, of course, you know, the Bible and the, the Syriac tradition, which is the, the tradition that I'm a part of. 
um, almost all the deuterocanonical books have been in there since like the fifth century. Mm-hmm. They've been used. Um, there's a few I think that that there was a little bit of a disputing about, but I mean for the most part, this has been the canon of scripture since the beginning of like the Maronite Church. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's a long time. You're talking one of the oldest traditions in the in, in in the church. Our liturgy has been around since Saint Jude handed it over to us, and then the Maronites eventually became uh, an order under uh, Saint Maroon, um, and that's how we kind of formed and became a church a few hundred years later. But I mean, this has been completely accepted. So I, I think it's important to understand that just because you don't have a hey this is a direct statement and this is this is the canon let's stamp it with the pope's stamp or i guess in this case you know seal it with his ring um just because when the entire church basically agrees on it there's no reason for that you know um yeah a lot of people have this bizarre kind of dictatorial idea of the church when so much of it is consensus building and consensus building not out of thin air but you know, from the teaching we received from the apostles and from their example and everything right. they did all over the known world. And I, 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 as somebody who's, who does a lot of history from this time period, I, I wonder where a lot of people get their notions on how Christianity worked at, at during this time period. You know, there are, are several questions on the validity of who wrote what book anyway Mm -hmm. and more than likely you had several people that were um copying these things down to pass them around that's most likely what happened with the letters it wasn't the exact same letter written by whoever's hand and we know that paul actually had several people you know take down his dictation um and he would he would at times have their names (laughs) well exactly but i mean like we have their names and we you know paul one time bragged and he was like hey look i'm even signing it with my own hand um (laughs) but even when peter when peter talked about or alluded to um evidence of scripture quote-unquote in the writings of paul he was really more so talking about paul speaking authoritatively under the influence Mm -hmm. of the holy spirit Yes, that is scripture, and that's how these things became that. But they themselves didn't hand us a list and say, okay, guys, these letters that were written to you, you need to put them together in a leather-bound book and make sure that any words that are spoken by Jesus are written in red. <laughs> that's not how that happened. Oh, gosh. So... Now, let's talk... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, Marcus, please. Oh, no. I was just going to, because one of the biggest things that I hear, and it's almost like a pet peeve, because, you know, clearly in some Protestant lines of thought, the human person has no agency. God does everything. So clearly the coming together of these councils was really an act of the Holy Spirit. And uh, shouldn't be plotting the Council of Rome you know, for for putting together the canon of scripture, even though it took like, you know, 200 years after the fact or so, you know, you, you know, we should just, no, the Holy Spirit did it, and that's, that's the canon, and that's the way it is. Uh, you know... Yeah, think of that extreme, that's pretty ridiculous. But, you know, when people want to say, oh, it wasn't the church that did it, it was the Holy Spirit that did it. Well, okay, in some sense, you may be right, but 
then you have to sit down and explain to me how it was that the spirit was able to guide the church mm -hmm. through this task of picking the right books and that was all the spirit did to the church well james the spirit didn't bother preserving the true faith in the church or you know <laughs> invested with any other authority but to define these books and then those books would be the only thing you have yeah, I, doesn't really make a lot of sense. If you're willing to admit the, the Spirit did this through the church, then why only that? Like, What reason do you have to believe that other than, well, if I say that the Spirit works through the church in other ways, then I have to admit I'm wrong about things. Precisely. And, That's know, the I, issue. I, I, I'm never wrong. I don't know about you guys, but I'm never wrong. <laughs> you know, here's the issue. And what it really boils down to is if, if you admit, or if a person admits that the Holy Spirit used the faculty of the church to do this, then he still is using the church. Yeah, there's not really an expiration date on that. Mm-mm. Just people have such an issue with Rome, and I think a lot of it is from obviously from Luther and Calvin. Mm -hmm. um, those men were so hateful, and there was there's a few things that there's a few things that I can agree with Luther on, and and there might be a thing or two that I agree with Calvin on, um, which is a big difference from before I was Catholic because I loved both <laughs> those guys, but and that was simply because of my hatred for Rome. I feel like a lot of people just dogpile because they dislike the Catholic Church and they hear, oh, you know, as soon as the, the, the coin hits the, or what is it, the coin hits the, the pocketbook, the soul's released from purgatory or something like that. Or Oh, yeah. 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 Like, as soon as the coin rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. One guy <laughs> said something like that. One guy. And he was, he was he was um he was censored for uh, exactly. censured yeah, for yeah. later yeah so so sure people have always gone around and they've always used the church as a way to make money that look at mm. simon look at simon the sorcerer simon magus from scripture it very clearly said that the reason why he wanted the gift of the holy spirit was so he could sell it we mm. have a we have a whole sin called simony because of that i can i can list more than a dozen churches where I've seen pastors pocket money without feeding the poor. How is that any different? Yeah. Let's say yeah, it, 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 it's, exactly. it's woefully common throughout Christianity, but I, I think part of the issue there is when you hear about it and it's some little church here or there, we don't think of it as discrediting anybody else. But when you hear a historical story of someone who did something like that in the Catholic Church, well, the Catholic Church is a thing you can hold in your mind as an actual community that can be discredited. Uh, if you want to think about this, you know, imagine some story from your country's history where one of your soldiers committed a war crime. Well, <laughs> okay, does that mean your country is a bad country? You should, you should hate your country and patriotism should go out the window? Well, a lot of people seem to think that way when it comes to the church, which is like, your your ultimate citizenship. Oh my goodness! And you know what's what's so bizarre to me is you know of course and this is just following the line of thought. If the Holy Spirit did inspire canon right then and there, 
And we, we were given the thumbs up to the Septuagint Old Testament plus the 27 books of the, the New Testament. You know, why do we have to fall back to the Masoretic text afterwards? You know, what happened? My question is, if the gospel was the same, came sprung from that, the reading of those things, mm-hmm. why does it change? Why does it change all of a sudden? Why is it that we need to go back to... So I, at the risk of sounding anti-Semitic, and this is a line that the church has crossed at times, but we we know that, that there was a scripture that was read from the Septuagint. We know that for a fact for hundreds of years by the church, Right. Then we have a group of people that rejected Christ who then began utilizing certain books and certain translations that excluded any followers of Jesus from having any influence on that. And then about 200 years after Christ has has been born and about 170 years after Jesus has died, they have this more concrete and less fluid scripture. Mm -hmm. Well, why is that so heavily trusted after we have evidence that, that these, these religious leaders specifically excluded any believer in Jesus from having any hand in that? It's kind of fishy to me. yeah, it is. If you think about the historical process, there, but I don't think most people are really aware of that because we tend to think when we encounter a religion, we are encountering the religion, period, like how it always has been. And even if you look at a very tradition-rooted uh, faith like Catholicism, or on the other hand, Eastern Orthodoxy, what you're seeing isn't going to be 100% how it always was, even mm-hmm. when there is a strong fidelity to the ancient faith. Judaism went through quite a transformation during that time period Eddie's referring to them, the first uh, few centuries of the AD period, um, because when you're looking at the Judaism of Jesus' time, it is a temple religion, it is a sacrifice religion. And when you're getting into modern Judaism, it's not a temple sacrifice religion. But we just kind of take for granted, like, well, this is this is the Judaism we see. It's rabbinical. It's people gathering together in synagogues scattered throughout the world or in the state of Israel. And they have a teacher who discourses on a written scripture. And that is the essence of Judaism. That only became so because of that process. And so we look at that and we say, well, they've got their body of scriptures that they accept and they're jews so clearly they would know like what the jewish scriptures are now like we've alluded to before that before that process had crystallized that was not the case and as eddie was alluding to during this time and just to put in more of the details uh jesus is crucified goes through his passion rises from the dead and all that good stuff Uh, around 30 AD. There are some speculations exact year, but it's in that area. 
About 70 AD, there is a major Jewish uprising against the Roman Empire. The mm -hmm. uprising is crushed mercilessly, and the Jewish temple is destroyed. And after that, there is this time of crisis, a crisis of identity, a crisis of purpose, a crisis of cult in the sense of how do we worship our God now that we can no longer offer sacrifice? And a lot of that process was, well, here's this upstart sect that claims to be the followers of the true Messiah. And by that right, uh, you know, that they identify with being like the true Jews or whatever. Those need to be excluded. And what they use and what they teach needs to be excluded. Because after all, if the Messiah has come, then why are we being punished? Why are we being driven from our homeland? Why has our temple been destroyed? And as part of that process, you have a lot of these later texts that we accept as part of the Old Testament that were associated with not being part of this identity we're fostering, especially because they were used so heavily by these upstart Christians. There was a rabbi by the name of Akiva, sometimes you see it, Akiva, who uh, explicitly like grouped in the Gospels of the Christians with books like Sirach, which is in a Catholic Bible, but not in your average Protestant Bible. So, I mean, that that's the process you're getting to to get to the Jewish canon we know today and getting to the Masoretic scriptural tradition. But we don't think about that when we look at Judaism today. I mean, that that's how it's always been, right? No, sorry. There was this period of time where there was this divergence, this crystallization of two distinct identities. The ethno-religious Judaism, which uses a pared-down scripture, and Christianity, which uses the full list of the Septuagint and still does in, its, in, the, in the communities that preserve the ancient faith. That, that's the historical process we don't think about. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, with those, uh, the, the Jews at that time, you know, they were reacting vehemently against Christianity. And, you know, you have that Talmudic line building up where they, you know, repudiate a lot of those books of the, the Sutujin as well. Yeah, that was a, that period of time was very tricky because it wasn't just a kind of defensive, let's define ourselves in a way that we can preserve identity. But a lot of it was very aggressive on mm -hmm. both sides. Like, here is why you are illegitimate, you know, Christians and ethno-religious rabbinical Judaism. Um, and you see that in some passages and some early texts that people on either side might want to shy away from today. I mean, uh, the Babylonian Talmud, if I recall correctly, just okay. straight up accuses Jesus of being a, a sorcerer who learned <laughs> demonic arts in Egypt or something like right. that. Uh, I, I, don't know, right. I don't know many of my Jewish friends who would affirm that today. Right. <laughs> so uh, I, I want to throw something out there real quick, by the way, just getting back to the, the subject of the the Jewish canosity of scripture, I'm sorry. Um, have you guys ever heard of Hanukkah? <laughs> oh, of course. Who hasn't? Okay, so... That, that's in the Old Testament somewhere, right? No, it is not. It's in the Deuterocanon in First Maccabees. Guess who also celebrated Hanukkah? Hmm. In John chapter 10, Jesus makes sure that he's in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Dedication, or Hanukkah, the festival of How lights. 
Interesting. But, but, the only reference to that at all is found in a book that this group of people said wasn't in scripture, but still they celebrate the holiday that <laughs> comes from that book. It's an, Yeah, which again speaks to the, the the jewish mentality about scriptures still is not the you know what we might associate with say evangelical protestant view of what scriptures are uh because in, in judaism there's still this idea of our religion isn't just what's written in these scriptures for them it's part of their historical heritage that you had this great rebellion and that they had their moment of triumph and there was this miracle associated with the temple and great but in their mind, they can do that while also rejecting the scriptures that refer to it because you have know, various reasons, as opposed to a lot of Christians today, especially within the Protestant movement, kind of have this mentality of, well, if it was important, it would be in the scriptures. It's not in the scriptures, not in the scriptures I accept anyway. Therefore, it's not binding. It doesn't matter. It, it amazes me, though, that you have a group of people that their religion dies. In a sense, yeah. And they reform that religion (laughs) into a way that can be be done without actually following the law. So the forgiveness of sins cannot happen for any Jewish person under Mosaic law because they no longer offer sacrifices yearly. I'm sorry. I don't want to pay attention to a group of people that openly and bra- like brazenly break the law of Moses. Yeah, that, that is kind of a tricky thing to approach there. And from that angle, I can kind of get why they did a lot of the things they did because they were stuck between a rock and a hard place. The temple has been destroyed. We've lost Jerusalem. We cannot, like literally cannot fulfill the requirements of the law. What are we going to do? I mean, I I don't even know if there's a possible equivalent for Christians. The best I could think of, and this still wouldn't quite do it, but like imagine if every copy of the Bible disappeared and our every memory of the scriptures disappeared that would be absolutely traumatic for the christian religion now i think we could still continue practicing it as the christian religion at least those of us who are not um scripture alone but that's kind of trauma you're looking at and that's kind of why this period of time you have to be very careful about and why i find it funny that so many people are so willing to latch onto these people as the authorities on what scripture is mm-hmm rather than the Christians who were being persecuted at the same time. And in some instances, with the help of uh, this uh, early rabbinical um, time period, unfortunately. So, But, you know, again, it comes down to what that early church did is what Catholics still do. And we all know Catholics are not biblical. I saw a post just the other day, Catholics hate the Bible. So who's going to take the early church's word on it when they are acting so gosh darn Catholic? I mean, I've never picked up a missile and seen scripture in it. <laughs> yes, certainly not. Yeah, we, we, 
We don't have little books with all the scripture readings that cycle throughout pretty much anything important in scripture right there in the pews for people. I, no, no. We, we hate you can't go through the whole scripture in three years if you go to Mass every day. That's not possible. <laughs> yeah. oh, fortunately, fortunately, it's a minority that goes so far as to say we hate the Bible. But there's still the insistence of you don't get the Bible or you're unbiblical or whatever else, which again, just historically, who put it together? But but here's the here's the other thing. Like, let's get into the process of how this canon was formed among Christians when it came to the New Testament. Because we talked about their councils, but we also right. talked about those councils are solidifying and formalizing what's already practiced. So all these Christian communities scattered throughout the known world, they're coming up with lists of books that they think our scripture can be used in worship and are authoritative and whatever else we want to say. How are they making that decision? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Well, that's one of those answers where it's like, you are exactly correct. And not helping at all <laughs> well they're they're obviously but, I mean, it, it is it is important to know that whatever's happening we're trusting in it presumably the spirit has a role in it and this is a good place to note that when uh, catholics speak of the spirit working through the church we don't just mean when the high and mighties are gathered in council uh you know when when people are acting as communities or even as individuals the spirit can be working there and even an organic process that happens over generations, that can be the work of the Spirit. We're fine with that. And I've known people whose idea is, oh, well, people came to agree on the canon over time, so it wasn't really the church. It's like, that was totally the church. The church isn't just the people in the robes and mitres. But, okay, so the Holy Spirit is working through the church. What are people thinking in their minds, though? As they're approaching the list. For the most part, it, it seems that what they're looking at is the first generation of Christians. The apostles, okay, yeah. apostolic writings, the writings of the gospels. The gospels are like automatically in. Um, then you start having the... Uh, it's The book of Acts is such an interesting book because it's not really an epistle in, in, in the truest sense, but it's also not a gospel. So it's kind of the bridging between the two. Um, yeah, it's like we've got a historical mm -hmm. book like Joshua, but for the New Testament. Precisely. And really, that's actually a really good way to explain that. Because the same journey into the promised land that that, mm. that Joshua and, and, and the people had, really and truthfully, these people were leaving said promised land to take the promise to others. The gospel, of course, being that promise. But... You then you start having the writings of Paul, who of course has the biggest influence. It, it's odd to me um, how many people, and I've heard this said before, you know, and I, I think I've shared this with you guys that that um, Paul is the Baptist Jesus. Um, <laughs> no offense to any of our Baptist friends, but Paul is kind of like the authoritative person to most people. Um, you know, of course, we've we've talked about the. 
the Petrine Church versus the Pauline Christianity and that kind of thing before, but hyper dispensationalism stuff, or yeah. what Jesus said was for Jews, we should be listening to Paul instead. Like, yeah, did I not raise any red flags for you right there? We we have to look at the fact that 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 mostly it's like your first generation ones. Paul is kind of the sore thumb though. Um, I personally I love Paul. I don't doubt his his authenticity. I don't doubt that the Lord called him, uh, but nobody saw that. Nobody was there with yeah. him. Yeah, that's true. He had a personal experience and what was going on with that. The biggest, I mean, you're talking about the biggest harasser of the church. <laughs> the guy that was trying to kill them off all of a sudden has this literal Damascus Road experience. Mm -hmm. And he's now writing half of the new testament uh, obviously the way that this happened is because he was brought before the magisterium the apostles and they mm -hmm. questioned him they saw that he was was baptized they saw these things and and they knew that he was authentic so that's one of the things that happened like you have this this early magisterium which was of course the apostles including paul himself that had these writings and that's pretty much how my understanding of the how the canon of scripture was bought brought together now the book of hebrews and the book of revelation were kind of questionable in mm -hmm. the early church specifically augustine um augustine of hippo i'm sorry um very specifically was like i'm not quite sure about the authorship of hebrews but i'm gonna mm -hmm. say it's like legit and yeah and then there are people arguing about that to this day yeah. so it's kind of curious that that has always been the thing that's there i'm of the opinion i'm with augustine on this like when you read the book of hebrews it doesn't have it's the different. same flavor as a typical pauline mm -hmm. um epistle um, I lean towards the idea that it might have been Barnabas, but it doesn't really matter um, it, at all, truthfully. Uh, it just matters that it's there. And it, it, it's a solid, solid book. Right. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. So, yeah, there, there's your number one big test. Does it date back to that first generation? And like I said, there were some things that were pretty obvious. I mean, we have writings from the second century where people are just casually referring to the four Gospels, mm -hmm. which, you know, again, we kind of take for granted. Oh, yeah, there are four Gospels. It's actually crazy that that early people just talked about the four Gospels. Um, Irenaeus of Leon, in particular, um, it writes a scathing attack on the Gnostics right. who are attacking uh, the Christianity of the church. They're attacking the Catholic church. And uh, it's one of the things he asserts against them is everybody knows there are four gospels. <laughs> but, you know, some other things, yeah, it took longer because we weren't always sure about authorship. And then there was uh, actually a couple of other layers there because um, there was a period of time where it wasn't necessarily hard set that it had to be right from the apostles. Some mm -hmm. people took the attitude of, well, if it's spiritually profitable enough and impactful enough, 
and still kind of relatively early, even if we can't trace it to an apostle, it should count. Um, so there were, there were a couple of texts that fall, fell under this category that some early Christians thought were scripture. Um, particularly, you had the Didache, which mm-hmm. kind of has a loose apostolic connection because it, it was called the teaching of the apostles. Um, but it was basically a, a little mini catechetical manuals teaching of various things. And it contains a lot of references to things that a lot of people aren't aware were things in the early church. Like, uh, you know, again, sorry to our Baptist friends, but the Didache, you have a very ancient document that says, hey, if you can baptize by immersion in a river, great. If you can't, well, here are all your alternatives. And eventually it gets down to, if you have to, pour water over the head three times. I'll do the, the formula, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. It's no good. I know a lot of people to this day who will fight you on this. But, like, here's an early church document that a lot of people thought was scripture, even, that says otherwise. Or another great one is it uh, uh, it, it directly answers the question of abortion, which a lot of people don't think was right, history, but it was a big issue in the Roman Empire. And it specifically says, don't do this, this is murder. Um, another great example is the... Uh, one sometimes just called the shepherd, sometimes called. I, w- I always mispronounce the guy's name, the shepherd of Hermas. Yes, and I've yes. listened to that one before. It's, it's a great devotional text, and it's also one of the ones where I listened to it and was like, Man, the early church was metal, they were hardcore. They had um, to be, though, like when you think about it, yeah. like you're being hunted yeah, down absolutely. and fed to lions, yeah. Yeah, and, and that one, a lot of it is, uh, it's like quasi prophetic. Um, very mystical, and a lot of it is um, imagery and symbolism about the church, and it, it, it's quite moving. And admittedly, it, part of me wishes it were in scripture because I, I would love to be able to wave it at people. Because when you listen to it, um, I, I listened to this while working uh, several months ago, and the entire time I'm like, this is so Catholic. Like, I can see how people can read Paul's letters and think he was a proto-Baptist, but this, like, there is no mistake in it. Well, I mean, if you take a look at the Didache, too, one thing that that goes to prove is that there was a form that was intended to be followed. And that yeah. that's, a, that's a proto-liturgical guide. Yeah. Well, I mean, just that kind of basic element of sacramental theology where it's not you do whatever because this is just a sign anyway, but but rather a no this this matters this is important this is given to us by Christ, this is how you do it. Um, there are a couple of other writings uh, that are slipping my mind at the moment, but I know there are several that a lot of people thought should be part of Scripture, and ultimately they were they were excluded because of that test Eddie mentioned. We really no. wanted to have a direct apostolic connection. The gospel was interesting. Or a disciple of an apostle who's probably consulting with an apostle. Um, but there's a second test um, that really was important that a lot of people don't think about. The writing in question had to agree with the teachings of the church. That's why and the gospel of Thomas it, specifically was not allowed mm-hmm. in right because because you had these texts floating about and someone would say hey this is the gospel according to thomas this is the gospel according to philip this is the gospel according to mary mm-hmm. 
they're they're gospels written by an apostle well okay how do we determine if they're written by an apostle do they agree with the teaching of the church do they agree with the living magisterium do they agree with the tradition that's been handed on from the apostles the teachings that have been passed on if they don't it's a pretty good giveaway that it's not scripture that it wasn't really written by the apostles, that it's junk and should be thrown out. And this is the curious thing. A lot of people today, they have this mindset of first you have scripture and then a church forms and it has proposals, but we check those proposals against the scriptures. I get where that's coming from. And from a certain perspective, that does seem to make sense. But the fact of the matter is the early church, it was there is a church and a teaching and then people propose writings as part of scripture and we test the scriptures against the church yeah so another reason why i, I always kind of balk when people are like oh the catholic church is so unbiblical it's like that book is in the bible because it agreed with the catholic church <laughs> still agrees with the catholic church if it disagreed with church teaching it wouldn't be in the Bible. Right. Again, not because like man is sovereign over the scriptures. Like, you know, totally. The Holy Spirit is absolutely involved in this process. But the church is the vessel and instrument the Spirit willed to use for them. If if the Holy and Spirit used the writers. The church was the entity. Mm -hmm. These writings were written to defend and promulgate and promote. Like, you, you, can't, you can't divorce these things like a lot of people want to. You can't have scripture alone. It's, it is literally physically, historically impossible with the means God employed for us to have had scripture alone. Now, he could have chosen to do it another way in which we, you know, we just have a Bible that pops out of the sky. Or he could have done the thing that Muslims believe happened with Muhammad where a scripture was just recited and you wrote it down. But the historical way the Christian faith was formed and the Bible was formed you you cannot literally cannot have the bible alone if the holy spirit used the writers which is what everybody agrees on right certainly hopes so. i mean as as christians like that's a generally accepted thing if the holy spirit can use the writers then he can absolutely use the church to to bind the book right it makes sense yeah absolutely and to preserve it and mm -hmm. that's thing a lot of people yeah. think about is, okay, you have this process, you get a canon that forms within the church with these rules, and when it gets you know, agreed upon by everybody, it stays the same. It isn't swinging this way or that way. Books are coming out, they're coming back in, back and forth. Like it, it's set, it's fixed, it's reliable. And I mean, this this is something I, like people who are radically anti-Catholic and have the mindset of you know, the church is trying to suppress the Bible, blah 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 blah. If that were the case, the church wouldn't have preserved the Bible the way she did. You you are you are literally trusting that God worked through the Catholic Church to preserve the Scriptures. You are going to use to try to disprove the church God used to give you the Scriptures. <laughs> Yeah, again, you break it down to little pieces and look at individual parts at a time. Bits might make sense, but just overall, think about what you're doing, man. 
you know, 1546 is pretty far removed from the church, the early church fathers. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And and the idea that we didn't have a book before then is kind of ludicrous. Um, You can look all the way back to roughly the Synod of, uh, of Hippo. Mm-hmm. and find evidence for that same canon of scripture you go there you go to the council of carthage the council of rome um all of these things have basically agreed upon this council but again that's the church coming together and based off the tradition that's been handed down to us from the apostolic fathers this is how we get the books in our bible you know uh since we you know, when we talk about Protestants, we typically think of, you know, removing books from the Bible, but let's go the other direction and talk about the the, the uh, Ethiopic Orthodox, the Oriental oh, wow. the yeah. Orthodox. Yeah, so that that's an area I know much less about, especially when you're getting to Tohedo Orthodox. I don't even know yeah. if I'm pronouncing that right. I, you know, uh, it's your guess is good as mine, to be honest. But yeah, I just I say curious yeah. group. A lot of people may not be familiar with them, but the African country of Ethiopia has a very large Christian population that uh, comes from the Alexandrian tradition. And there's still a lot of Christians in Egypt as well who follow um, yeah, the Alexandrian tradition. They, they, right, they're, they're descend, supposedly from uh, the, 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 uh, the lineage of St. Mark, right? Yeah, yeah. St. Mark is frequently credited with uh, really getting the church in Alexandria going and then Alexandria was a massive intellectual center. It keeps coming up in these podcast episodes. And yeah, that, that, that was a tradition that um, spread south along the Nile, uh, went down into what was then frequently called Abyssinia. And that's actually one of your largest um, groups of Christians in the world because there are just so many people in Ethiopia um, who follow this form of what's called oriental orthodoxy which i know is confusing for a lot of people there's eastern orthodoxy and oriental orthodoxy (laughs) and there's a significant difference there but not in the way a lot of people think like in terms of a lot of practices and you're looking at another church that's derived from the apostles but um Mm -hmm. where you get a, a split off community is council of uh chalcedon uh, where you have arguments about whether Christ has one nature or two natures, and uh, Alexandria and the churches we now know as the Oriental Orthodox broke off because they disagreed with the Council. So Eastern Orthodoxy and Catholics agree with the Council of Chalcedon, Oriental Orthodox split. But uh, yeah, the the Toahedo Orthodox Church in Ethiopia is known for sometimes being a little eccentric, even if in a lot of ways the faith is recognizable as a very close cousin to Catholicism and yeah. Eastern Orthodoxy. I was about to say normal Orthodoxy. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that might be loaded language there. <laughs> so uh, the thing I wanted to mention was, like, for example, uh, uh, from what I've read in the past, because I've had my... I, my my main foray into the, the like the Coptic church is mostly their architecture, but every now and then I, I do a deep dive over their 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 practices and and their their understanding of things and you know like for example they include in their Old Testament the Book of Enoch, which is for a lot of people that's you know in our Bible doesn't have it the you know the the mainstream Jewish peoples do not have it, 
And uh, I think the only ones that really recognize the Book of Enoch are more so like the like the Kabbalists and and you know more the esoteric side of things. But right, they they. I, it, well, I'm just going to briefly mention that I think the main reason, and from what I've read, is that because there's supposedly a a mention, uh, like a mentioning of a story of it in the the Epistle of Saint Jude, and so because Saint Jude referenced the Book of Enoch, therefore it should be part of the canon. Yeah, that, that's what I was about to say. Is uh, a lot of people speculate that. I don't know whether that's the case. Now, Eddie, Eddie's there shaking his head. I throwing <laughs> this out there. I will say this, that there is a large, uh, when, when the diaspora happened with the Jews, a large portion ended up in Ethiopia. So a lot of the traditions that they have there, because they have so many more Old Testament books than what we do. Right. You start to wonder, it's like, okay, so all of these Ethiopian Jews, they gathered extra books too, just like the Alexandrian Jews did. And it goes to show that fluidity that was apparent prior mm -hmm. to um, basically uh, 70 AD and 200 AD. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm shaking my head about Enoch because I've... You, uh, in today's society, like with, with television shows like Supernatural and Lucifer and all the rest of these things, they, they'll reference randomly from the book of enoch and it gives some people this idea that there's some hidden knowledge in these tv shows and and that <laughs> that luther mornings or i'm sorry lucifer morningstar is actually jesus's brother that kind of crap oh, and it, it, first off number one the devil's never named in scripture right um that's a misconception okay um he's called the satan mm -hmm. literally it means the Satan, the Shaitan. Uh, it's 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 a denomer of he's the opponent, the adversary. You know, um, mm -hmm. so in 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 the Book of Enoch, you you kind of have these metaphysical overtones that you don't really find in the rest of, of the scripture. And while right. I think it's kind of cool to read. I just, I would caution people not to get too terribly deep into it without right. having a good grounding in biblical Christianity. That's mm -hmm. why I shake my head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if you look at the most expansive list out there, like the other thing, like, like Eddie was saying, there, there's a lot of, of influence for what we now know as beta Israel, the Ethiopic Jews. And also, because this is a movement with very early roots, it doesn't have the same sort of strict set uh, idea about scriptures. So from what I've been able to find, it looks like there are narrower and broader concepts of scripture mm -hmm. within especially Ethiopian Christianity, where you can get canons that look very similar to those you see in Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy and to a certain extent, Protestantism plus the books that Protestants threw out. But then you have broader ones. I think the, the broadest list is 81 books. So compare that <laughs> to the Catholic 73 or the Protestant 66. And some of these are, you know, weird things. Like, so there's Letter of Enoch. Um, 
there's like a variation on Maccabees, but, not yeah. the Maccabees we have. Right. Uh, um, the interesting thing is um, some of the broader canons, like the narrower canon is literally the New Testament we all know and love. Mm-hmm. The broader one adds a couple of odd little things. I'm not familiar with what they are. Like this part, I'm literally looking off of the list on Wikipedia. <laughs> like there, are, there are four additional things. And the only thing I can come close to guessing what it is, is there's one listed as Ethiopic Clement. And one of the books I was forgetting earlier that some people thought should have been in the New Testament was um, commonly known as First Clement. is the letter of Clement of Rome um, mm-hmm. to the church in Corinth. Because Corinth was having a big spat, I believe. Um, some clergyman was dismissed and there was some fighting over whether it was legitimate. And Clement was writing to basically tell them to cool down, act like Christians, and stop being stupid like like a lot of <laughs> when did corinth did the corinthians not have problems yeah i oh my God. I, I, i'm sure right now we go to corinth we go to the office of the uh, greek orthodox bishop in corinth and they're probably two guys duking it out right there right now um even though oh right God. now it's probably like three in the morning in uh, greek in, in greece so, I, so my guess would be Ethiopic Clement is probably like a variation on that letter. Mm-hmm. It's known as Ethiopic because maybe there were some copying errors or some uh, insertions that were made that were particular to that region. But it's one of those things where, like, I'm not sure where a lot of that comes from. And they have a number of odd legends and traditions that nobody's really sure where they come from. I and mean, these, these are the same people who claim that uh, they have the Ark of the Covenant at the, I think it's the Church of St. Mary of Zion. And they they have it there, but you can't see it. So, you know, I I don't know. (laughs) I'm I'm not Uh, sure how far you want to trust that. Yeah. For me, the the most... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to quickly add just just the general point of... You you can see that this is a community that's a little looser with some things. So you can kind of see why they have a possibly broader canon of scripture. Because they're definitely not thinking about this like Baptists. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, the, uh, you know, the thing is that I was going to uh, veer into is that, you know, a lot of the books, and of course, like we go into like the Apocrypha, I mean, what we call truly the Apocrypha, you know, the, the Nag Hammadi texts and whatever, all that kind of thing. Very quickly, what uh, does Apocrypha mean? Hidden. The, Very helpful for a lot of people. The, the hidden things, things right? Hidden. That's, or to be yeah, hidden. The hidden Usually things. Usually referring right? to like, we have no idea where this came from. Fun fact, a lot <laughs> of the that Protestants sometimes refer to as Apocrypha, like we know where they came from. Like sometimes like their author is named right there. They're like, oh, this is apocryphal. I was like, no, it's not. <laughs> like, literally, it's not <laughs> the definition of the word. But, yeah, there, there's stuff that really is apocryphal. We have no idea where it came from. Yeah. And its legitimacy is, like, really sketchy sometimes. And, you know, like you know, like what, what Eddie was saying earlier about, like, you know, and, and you also, you know, like, because I, they, I think they also include the Book of Jubilees and I've read that one before, and that one's actually really cool. I mean, that's the one where you get the story of like how uh, it elaborates, like on Enoch, that the fallen angels mated with mortal females and gave rice the race of giants known as the Nephilim, and then 
then apparently they had descendants too and uh you know it, it gets all sort of like like or or the ethiopic version has that the angels were in fact the disobedient offspring of seth and then the moral female females were the daughters of cain and then it just you know falls apart from there but the you know, there's just so much so much freedom and in interpretation with that but you know it's and i i can see why that in in the wisdom of the church and of course guided by the holy spirit we have the you know the spirit of prudence really uh on how to determine scripture because when you admit texts like enoch in the book of jubilees you can have a lot of weird theological um conjectures from that which ironically may be part of the reason why you only see some of these texts in churches like those of the oriental orthodox that you know, they may not be as firm about some things, but like they're still carrying forward a tradition from the apostles. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, if they were approaching it with the mindset that a lot of, uh, a lot of Protestants have about scripture, you, you can guess they probably wouldn't have done some of these things because again, Book of Enoch, or, you know, you're talking about the Jubilees, like if someone mm -hmm. was just sitting there and trying to come up with a theological system based on that and, you know, we don't need the traditions of man like, you know, St. Mark. <laughs> yeah, they, they might come up with some very bizarre <laughs> things. So yeah, I, I can kind of see why a, a church where that does just does not occur to them that you might go sola scriptura might be more willing to say, this is a spiritual significance. And, you know, it can be read wrong or it can be read right. We'll, we'll take it. Yeah, you know, that's something you could see happening in like, uh, well, like the Roman tradition, the the, oh. the tradition of Latin Christianity, which tends to be more, I don't know if literal is the term, um, but we'll, we'll go with that term, more literal. And it is one of the reasons why Revelation was a problem for us. Is like we were, we were like, yes, there is a correct reading of this, and there are lots of bad readings of this, and we want to be very careful about that. And yeah, we can kind of see that borne out today with a lot of people who are like, I don't need 2000 years of theology to understand Revelation. I've got a calculator. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, you know what? Let, let's talk about the, uh, you know, when it when it came to uh, what was going to say real quick. So, like, for example, um, in the topic of the uh, oh, gosh, I lost my train of thought. So, oh, okay. So let's talk about like how we look at um, different editions that we see between manuscripts. Like for example, uh, in my some of my Bibles, you have like additional chapters to uh, the Book of Daniel, for example, like the story of Bell and the Dragon. You know, um, the story of uh, you know some some additional things in there that 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 crop up you know what, what do we say about that do we do we go with the oldest uh scriptures and leave them out or do we you know keep them in the keep them in keep them in our bibles it's actually an interesting question about how you think about the scriptures because i i know a lot of people who want to base what is authoritative scripture based on scholarship and for mm -hmm. them it's very much let's find the oldest manuscript we have because that's going to be the real deal. And anything that's not in that should be excerpted out or you know, whatever we might do. 
I think that comes from a mentality that says that only when the original author is writing is there inspiration going on. At no point could anybody have additions that might be inspired and permitted by the Spirit. And there can't be historical processes happening through the people of God that might incorporate things through mm-hmm. the working of the Spirit. Only what is absolutely original before the, you know, the, the pen was set down or whatever instrument was being used. I'm not really comfortable with that mentality, partly because, you know, again, you're putting a lot on human scholarship. I know a lot of people who are like, well, I'm not just going to take the, the church's word on this. So I'm going to go to the word of Dr. So-and-so in the Department of Archaeology at this university <laughs> who has changed his mind on the dating of this text five times already, but he's the authority in the field. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't want to just dismiss people who are doing that work. It's good, important work. But when you're basing these things just on human scholarship rather than trusting that maybe the spirit is still active among the people of God, preserving the scripture from error and ensuring that what we have is true. It's kind of an odd mentality for me, especially when you're looking at people from a Protestant background who place such a heavy emphasis on the importance of scripture and up to this point have been willing to say, yeah, the spirit made sure we put the right books together. And yeah, the spirit has preserved the scriptures to this day. Mm -hmm. And also, I think the scripture, the spirit might have been asleep when somebody added this verse in. So we need to cut it out because someone wrote a paper that I'm really impressed with. <laughs> I, I, I see this all the time in, in debates over things like the King James Bible. I, I, I know people who are absolute King James devotees whose big beef with a lot of modern Protestant Bibles is that they'll follow the latest scholarship. Um which might be reasonable in some respects, but sometimes it's things like this entire chapter, like Marcus, you referred to, Mm -hmm. we don't think it's there. Therefore, we're just going to cut it out and just assume that the spirit let it be there because I don't know, maybe the spirit just doesn't care about the Bible sometimes. Yeah. Things like that don't really make a lot of sense. Right. So yeah, when when I see a passage that some people say was, interpreted in at some later point like so long as it's reasonably ancient doesn't introduce any contradictions and clearly the spirit has allowed this to happen let me i i, let me, I, I tend to lean towards keep it let in. me throw this out there yeah have you ever heard the nursery rhyme mary had a little lamb Yes. Mary had a yes. little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. Um, that's a story about Jesus and the Blessed Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. Every kid that I know in the West has heard it. Every kid's listened to it in, in Sunday school. Every kid's probably sung it at some point in time. This is a tool to teach the story. Mm-hmm. Why do we have sacred art? Sacred art is there so that if you can't speak the language, the lingua franca, franca of the era area that you're in, you can see the gospel presented in front of you. You know, that's the purpose of it. So here's my question. 
And I'm just posing it as a question. I do believe that the, that the Bible is the words of God. We've, we've had this discussion many times, but what is your purpose for reading the Bible? Is your mm. purpose to be taught from it and to learn from it? Or is your purpose to dissect it for some other cause? Right. Are you trying yeah. to disprove someone? Or are you trying to reprove someone? There's a difference there. Or, or, or to uh, quote the great and authoritative revelation, uh, the last crusade, are you doing this for his glory or for yours? Mm-hmm. When you, you need to, like, again, intent matters. What are your intentions in this? Like when you're reading a scripture. So again, like you can read the book of Enoch. Are you looking for some second gospel? Are you looking Mm -hmm. for some like esoteric knowledge? Or are you just reading it to be admonished towards the gospel? Um, That intent matters. You know, and I think a lot of that happens within some of the the larger canons is that they see that, that there's, there's, good to be found in here that lead towards christ because again ultimately every apparition that has been um made official by the church what does mary do she points to her son mm-hmm. every miracle that's performed by a saint what does it do point to us. Point, points to jesus yeah every time that god speaks like literally speaks in scripture which is very few times when he when Jesus was baptized, what did God say? This is my beloved son. It always points to Jesus. So if you're not doing that with your reading of scripture, you need to rethink why you're reading it in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And and when it comes down to the the way that people view the Bible, I, I think that they idolize it a little bit too much. And we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. Like, I believe that there mm-hmm. is there is a way to make the Bible your idol because the Bible is not Jesus. The, there's nowhere in scripture where it says that a book is the word of God. That's a, that's a phrase that we've made up to explain what the Bible is. Jesus is the word. He is the eternal logos. It's important to remember that. And, and again, I think that's another reason why people get so up in arms when you tell them, well, you don't have enough books. I remember there's this awesome um, meme that I found one time. And it's, it's a picture of Pope Francis holding up the, the, the book during Mass. Oh, yeah. And he looks over oh. at someone and it, it, it's subcaptioned. Make sure that they're all there. Feels a little bit light. Oh, yeah. You didn't move any books, did you? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And then I remember someone, uh, I think it was, I. it might have been me. I, I mean, I remember I made one of the early ones of, uh, because back in the day, it was Marie Kondo was very popular. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was like, uh, yes, uh, Marie Kondo suggested there should only be like seven or ten or something like that. So it's like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> they did not spark joy. Marie <laughs> Kondo. <laughs> 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 Keep Marie Kondo. Pauline ep- epistles, everything else, 
This does not bring joy. <laughs> oh my gosh, that'd be hilarious. Another hint, you're reading it wrong. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know what? I don't know if we want to keep on uh, talking about this, but the, um, you know, it's, I find it also interesting that when you look at how some other, I don't want to call them Christian cults, but, you know, some Christian, uh, you know, offshoots, right? They have, um, they they try to also, you know, incorporate their own works as scripture. So like, for example, uh, Mary Baker Eddy from the Church of Christ Scientists. Total cult. Uh, she, you know, I remember I was, I was reading ahead because I, I don't know why I want to get, what, what, what's her book called? The uh, Something about, uh, let's see, Mary Baker Eddy. Science and Health with the Key to the Scriptures. That's what it is. The Key to the Scriptures, of course. And, um, she, you know, written in 1875. And I remember when I was reading about it, that, um, you know, she, I guess she was deemed a prophet, right? A prophetess of the, the, the whole thing. And so she ordained that the two books for, for salvation were essentially the Bible and her book. How convenient. eventually their their leaders started becoming like emanations of christ to them Mm -hmm. and it gets pretty dangerous when you start looking into some of these things you have the same thing with the the mormons uh one day we need to get our friend margaret on here to talk about that with uh oh yeah with them but like the book of mormon for example it's total hogwash um Mm -hmm. it's a guy who and again i think one day we need to talk about the second great awakening and how it really affected american religion but during that time you have a lot of these these cults kind of springing up um joseph smith was heavily into like ritual magic and he tried to like merge mysticism with ritual magic and and some christianity involved in it and he came up with this total bullcrap story about an angel that i mean it's kind of the it's kind of what the well, book of Galatians says. No, don't do you know even if an angel from heaven I mean, comes down yeah, I mean, to you and says any other thing than what we said, you know, let him be anathema to you. People don't actually no, pay attention. No irony. Oh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. sorry. Go ahead. Oh yeah, I mean, like, like no, I was just saying, like, there's no irony that he was also a, the L. Ron Hubbard of his time because he was known for writing tall tales as well. Yeah. So. Oh, and L. Ron <laughs> Hubbard is another one there. That's that's one. You know the reason why they use a cross. Because they want to appeal to Christians to try to get them over and get their money. It's it's such an accepted... It's like it's such an accepted like good symbol that nothing but good could come of them having it on there. Um, Mm -hmm. And then they try to like extrapolate the eighth eighth paths or whatever because of what what not. But no, I mean, again, like this is what happens with your cults is that when you start at this point, when you start adding things to the scripture past the ancient texts you're going to get a bunch of crap, you know, but, uh, but here's where I ask the question. Why is the same thing not applied to the writings of Luther or John Calvin or John Knox? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tricky practical problem for a lot of people. I I know a lot of people point to things I write where I'm pointing to the, the early church fathers and say, well, those were just men. Well, okay. That is, true (laughs) they are just men 
But frequently, you'll see the same people who do the same thing for some of the reformers. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, at least my just men were disciples of the disciples of Christ. Right. Your just men were a monk with a psychiatric condition, a a bizarre tyrant in Geneva, and you know whatever you want to point to in the English tradition, that that's its own bizarre mess. Or you know even when you even when you find someone who is decent and intelligent and seems sincere, and you know what, Bob, we'll just throw the reformers in there with that, ignore their flaws. I okay, yeah, sure, but you have to understand they're just men, but they're also just men working a millennium and a half after the fact of Christ's mm-hmm. ministry without any connection. But hey, I've got a limited body of writing. I'm pretty sure I can figure things out just with my brain and this writing and nothing will go wrong with this whatsoever. You know, I'm sorry, there's not a lot of wisdom. There, there, can, there may be points where they have insights. I, I'll say there's some points where Luther had actual genuine insights, but right. overall, I'm, I'm really worried about guys that treat them as though they're authorities. I mean, if you ask them, they'll say, well, of course, the Bible is the only authority. But a lot of people get really close to this guy said it, therefore it's especially right. wise and well, true. Or, or you know, it's it's it becomes hidden, right? Because I, I know when we've talked about people in the irresistible, what is it? Is that the group is irresistible? Truth? I'm not sure we want to give them publicity. The, uh, or <laughs> they, group, you know, yeah. They, it's a, yeah. So the thing is, is that you know, you you call them out for being Calvinist, you call them out for being Lutheran or whatever, and all of a sudden you get this weird backlash. It's like. Um, I sure I like Calvin, but you know, I'm just saying what the Bible teaches. The Bible no. has all this and so on. No, you're <laughs> regurgitating what a man teaches you from what he interpreted from the scripture. Yeah. That's what you're regurgitating. <laughs> right. It's uh, it's great whenever yeah. it's great whenever people try to use Augustine as the early Calvinist, but he's oh, very yeah. well known to have said, Rome has spoken, that it'll be. Well, even on the points that people, like the five pointers that want to talk about the five points all the time, like depending on how they're defining the five points, because let's be honest, they don't always agree on the definition of the five points. And then it becomes four, sometimes three. (laughs) Well, yeah, you get that too. I mean, just something as basic as whether or not we can choose to sin or not when under grace, you know, classical calvinism you still have no free will augustine is very clear that you have a will through grace to sin or not to sin and if you choose to sin you can even lose your salvation (laughs) there's something a lot of those people aren't going to talk about but that may that may raise another issue though with how people tend to think of canons Mm -hmm. um because it's the it's the selectivity issue it's the issue of I'm going to think of this as a set of materials that I can pull, pull from at will that don't have a broader context of a tradition or a community and don't operate as a body of truth, but as lines that individually stand on their own and can be interpreted reliably by my profound wisdom. And you see this with the scriptures, you see it with how they approach the church fathers, how they approach their own reformers. 
I see people quote uh, Luther all the time on things where it's like, I've read enough Luther to know that he doesn't mean what you think he means. <laughs> it's interesting to me. <laughs> well, you can't even get your own right. Exegetical practices are so personal because you're looking for something. Like when you use, when, when, I think exegesis is, is a, is a useful t- tool, but when you're looking specifically to try to prove a point, you're always going to find that out of context. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I've seen people that are like, okay, well here, 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 Paul's referencing the gospel. No, Paul never references the gospel. The gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John were not written prior to Paul's letters. I mean, if anything, they were being active. It was actively preached during that exactly. Time, he you know. he's not referencing the Gospels. That doesn't happen. He's referencing mm-hmm. the Old Testament, and he's referencing the teaching, mm-hmm. like we were saying here. But he's never referencing yeah. books that did not exist yet. So you have to look at it from a from a very historical point of view. It's like yes, these there's a reason why. Paul's writings and the Gospels match up, it's because the church said, hey, this is the teaching of the church. Mm-hmm. And it matches, so we're going to put it in the book. Right. But that's what that's what blows me away, is that people think that, like, literally, on a, a timeline of A to B, or I'm sorry, A to Z, Matthew starts everything off, and then we go through Revelation, and that's the end. And that, that's the timeline <laughs> that they were written. And that's not at all the case right. whatsoever. The last book that was written was roughly 90 AD. And that was the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that's the last book. And that's roughly when St. John the Apostle died. Right. So. I'm going to be still alive. I don't okay. know. <laughs> no, we know better than that. Marcus. Oh, yeah. No, I don't. <laughs> We we have his relics, but he's got uh, like his disembodied head floating around somewhere again. Yeah, it's that guy, that guy. I you know what, guys, I'm gonna write my own gospel and in it, I'm gonna say I'm the one that Jesus loved. That's exactly what John did. Oh, I know. <laughs> or like especially like when uh when uh Peter and 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 John were racing to the tomb, he's like, I want. <laughs> Who's gonna know? Yeah, but you know the beautiful thing about that though, honestly, is it shows the human side of that. Yes. It really does. And that's a beautiful thing. That you're talking about really and truthfully, these were not guys our age. You know? Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe right. James's age. But they weren't 40 year olds like me. Yeah, I'm I'm probably about the age range. You know, I'm I'm, I'm the whippersnapper of the group. They ranged probably in age from 14 to 28. You know, these mm-hmm. were guys that, that probably weren't the same age as Jesus. Um, you've, got, you've got two guys that are known as the Sons of Thunder, John and James. Yeah. And there's mm-hmm. a reason, <laughs> you know? There's a reason. Not just because of their dad's name, but because of the way that they were. Um so it's interesting. Like we, we, we have to look at those things and understand that, that there's a very human element to the scriptures. It has to be because there's human writers. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul can come across incredibly arrogant if you don't read in context what he wrote. Yeah. <laughs> he's kind of a jerk. <laughs> I mean, he, he's don't, right. I mean, 
don't get me wrong he's right that like he comes across kind of jerky but you have to read yeah. it in context and again that's that's what that's yeah. where proper like if you're going to read a scripture don't just read one scripture read the entire book mm-hmm. you know don't don't just go and even just read a chapter because those those were added much later yeah th- those are divisions humans came up mm-hmm. with and you know they, they are very useful i'm glad we have them but yeah, sometimes that can create artificial divisions because the, the people coming up with chapter divisions, they had different ideas of, well, this constitutes a coherent passage and we have a thematic shift here, so we're going to put in a chapter division there. But you get you get some awkward things sometimes. Um, I mean, I think and, like in the... I'm oh, sorry, I was just going to say in the Satuagin. You probably have yeah. a better example than I do. Well, I, in the Satuagin, you know, the ordering, of, the numbering of the Psalms is is different oh, you know, than, yeah. than most modern Bibles. Well, so. well, that's the thing. With a lot of things you're looking at historically when they're written down, a lot of the emphasis is on having the content there, not necessarily on the organization. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same reason why we have differing lists of the commandments. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. because we disagree on what the commandments are. We just can't agree on what goes with What's what. What's the theme? <laughs> what theme you're talking about? Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't, so, nobody's saying so it's not like, a sin to break yeah. it. It's just, it's right. under a different exactly. Line, you know? But, exactly. Mm-hmm. So like, like yeah. the logic you see in, in the, the Latin tradition about how you order the commandments, it's very thematic, very much the idea of, like we're, we're attacked all the time for, you don't have the graven images commandments. Like, yes, we do. We understand the <laughs> commandment against idolatry, and we have a commandment against idolatry. We have that as one big lump, and in our heads, commandments nine and two are two different commandments about coveting. Yeah. You know, the coveting of your neighbor's property and your, the coveting of your neighbor's wife. We understand yeah. as being two different kinds of coveting. Uh, I, like if, if you're coveting your neighbor's ox the same way you would covet his wife, you need a therapist. <laughs> but there are other reasonings out there and like that's that's fine the jews have their own completely different tradition that a lot of people don't realize um the the orthodox use one system and okay you know what you got the content there you get the same thing with you know where should chapters be like if if the ancient jewish authors were dividing things into chapters then okay that would be rather handy but you know it would really be a mess is if the scribes a century later tried to put in chapters, you would never hear the end of art. Rabbis would be arguing to this day. <laughs> 2,500 years later, they would be arguing about where the chapter division should be. I, I find it really interesting that um, when people are looking at the numbering of the commandments, I, st- I still have a problem with that, by the way because i was it's so ingrained in me what it was but like, right I, I find it really interesting that, that people get kind of up in arms about the the two cv thing or like the second commandment violation right. where yeah. it's like do not make unto thee any graven images so you can't have anything with a face or you can't have or, it a statue or something yeah but then god right. goes and commands moses to make images <laughs> yeah so the whole point of it is like again, it's this understanding of what veneration is versus worship. Because oh, yeah. let's be honest here, there's a lot of veneration in the Old Testament. Oh yeah. 
I mean, you're always talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, that's veneration of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know. So. By the way, here's another fun fact, too, about um, ancient documents. The Vulgate's been around since, like, the 4th century in some form or fashion. Yeah, that, that's a late 4th century translation. Yeah, Jerome did that in the late 4th century, and that means that predated Trent, too. Yeah. But that, maybe that brings up a point we should discuss. I, I know a lot of people will bring up St. Jerome did not like the Septuagint canon. Yes, I've heard that. So, does that mean that, whoops, there goes our entire case? There wasn't consensus. This guy disagreed. Well, But also, St. Jerome is not the entirety of the Catholic Church. And I think that's the key point. A lot of people think the Catholic emphasis on tradition is, if you can get a guy far enough back saying something, well, Catholics got to believe it. No, the idea is it's it's the belief of the body. Right. That goes back to the apostles. So, yeah, you're going to have individuals who say, I'm not so sure about this. And you'll, you'll notice with St. Jerome, it's a lot like a lot of modern Bible scholars who yeah. aren't so sure about some passages. Jer Jerome, a lot of it was a linguistic chauvinism. There's an idea of, well, you know, the manuscripts we have for these books, they're in Greek, not Hebrew. And, you know... I really think these should be in Hebrew. If they're not in Hebrew. I'm not sure I like this. But here's the interesting point. A lot of people who bring that up miss. What did Jerome do when he was producing his Vulgate? Did he just say, well, I'm not going to do it because I don't believe those are scripture? No, he said, well, you know what? I don't like it, but the church uses these books. The people of God use these books. It isn't up to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that, that's the radical difference here is when you're determining what the content of revelation is, a lot of people, they think of it as it is my decision to make. Right. Now, granted, what they'll do with that is I will decide that I accept the <laughs> Protestant canon versus the Catholic canon. But it's very much I will decide. And I must be convinced personally. And so, but here's the thing about Christianity. It's not just Jesus and you. It's Jesus and us. It's Jesus and the church. And yes, if you are a believing Christian baptized into the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord, great. In some way, you are part of the church. Wonderful. It doesn't mean that that means you're just suddenly smarter than everybody else. No, you're part of a body. Yeah. The, the body is what possesses the wisdom of the apostles, what has carried it forward for 2,000 years. So... You individually, you know, maybe you have some doubts about some things. Uh, work on that. But that you have doubts doesn't overturn what the church as a whole is doing. Again, not because it's like it's a democracy thing. It's not like, oh, we Christians voted and 75% said we're going to do it this way. No, no, it, the general belief, general practice going back to antiquity, to the origins, to, you know, this little guy we talk about named Jesus, so, and that's the thing about Jerome. Jerome's a smart guy. He's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. He had an opinion. But even he was humble enough to recognize, yeah. this is my opinion. My, my opinion is my opinion. It's not more than that. But for a lot of people, it's, well, you know, I read the book of Tobit, and 
the way that this healing miracle occurs looks to me, I, I think that's actually like black magic. So <laughs> I'm going to reject it. I'm sorry. That's not how that works. I mean, for one, you're wrong. <laughs> Two, you're probably doing this because you're looking for an excuse to reject that text. Right. But more importantly, it's not about you individually. You are not the arbiter of revelation. No one person is the arbiter of that. Not even a pope. Like if Pope Francis came out today and said, you know, we're adding a book to the Bible, he can't do that. No. Let me break that to you. The Pope can't do that. He is not like literally God on earth or whatever other crazy things people claim we think. So here's a question. So why Trent? Why was it so important to to come out and just say, okay, this is a dogmatic statement? Because some people just don't get the message. And there was a lot of confusion among the masses because of all the spin that was happening for like what 30 years right well there, there was a I mean, you're talking about a time where there's a full-scale propaganda campaign going on yeah. I mean, the, the, pardon me um, my dinner's disagreeing with me but and this this is after the invention of the printing press but not too long after so everybody's learning the art of how to run a good propaganda war and yeah, it's very easy to confuse people with that because you've got pamphlets all over the place claiming all kinds of things. And here's the great thing about a council. It's a great way to clarify an issue to say, hey, this is it. Listen and shut up. <laughs> dramatic there. But this is the thing. Whenever you have a general practice and belief, it doesn't matter how far back it's, it's stretched, when it is challenged, a lot of people are going to have questions about it. And same thing happened yeah. when Arius was going around saying that yeah. Jesus wasn't truly divine and eternal. And a lot of people are like, oh, it doesn't sound like what I've been taught, but I don't know, maybe that makes sense. And if yeah. he's got a clever argument, and believe you me, like as much as I like to crap on Luther and Calvin, those are not stupid men. They right. had decent arguments, and especially if you hadn't studied the issue, they could be compelling. I mean, I know a lot of intelligent people today who are swayed by words where it's like, yeah, man, if, if, if before you had read this, you had read other things. But so, yeah, in that environment, having a council to say, hey, this is what we've always done. This is what the spirit has always driven us to do. That's not going to change because a monk in Germany or, you know, I don't even remember what Calvin did before he went nuts. I mean, he, he was a French lawyer, then he that's got... Right. Yeah. Well, that, that's the interesting thing. I mean, total aside, Luther was training to be a lawyer before uh, he became a monk. Mm -hmm. so, anybody find it interesting that the great guiding lights of a Reformation whose central principle was that salvation is a legal fiction? <laughs> I mean... Backgrounds in law? <laughs> okay, but... That's an aside. That's an right. aside. Um, but yeah, the, the faith, this is what we've always done, always believed. This is what the Spirit has driven us to do. And these guys, these individual teachers with their, say it with me, man-made tradition. <laughs> like yeah. literally we know the man who came up with these ideas. They can't overturn that. They don't have the authority to do that. They aren't the apostles. They aren't Christ. They can't establish a new faith. They can't take the faith that was always there and uproot it. And they can't say, hey, 
And this thing, the spirit has always just let you acknowledge a scripture. We're going to throw it out and tell you to ignore it because I am a doctor greater than all the doctors in popedom. And that is a quote from Martin Luther. <laughs> you may you know, be smart, but you are not that smart. Well, I mean, take for example. Are you Luther or, you know, Mr. You know, evangelical whatever sitting at your keyboard right now. You may be very smart, but you are not smarter than the body of Christ. Something to throw this out certainly there. Not, certainly not smarter than the Spirit of God. With Luther, and we've uh, we've attacked this numerous times, but his 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 thoughts on justification. He has one person that he draws from, with sola fide. Mm-hmm. Well, this is what the scripture really meant: is that mm-hmm. by faith alone. No, nobody agrees with you before that. Nobody. Yeah, and I've seen I've seen attempts to point to other people, and invariably it falls apart. Like, oh well, Saint John Chrysostom used the phrase "faith alone" at one point, and you look up the sermon, and it's like he's not talking about this issue. And you can find tons of his other sermons where very clearly, you you can't just neglect good works and refuse to live the faith and expect a reward for that. Well, that's why he he um, turned around and rejected another the James. Oh, uh, yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, St. James. He has something to say about that. Or, you know, another one, you know, he's, just he's the most blunt. Bernard of Clairvaux, and, and that one doesn't fall into line either. It's, it's like anybody who stressed the primacy of grace, we're going to say yeah. they believe in faith alone, even if other things they wrote very clearly contradict it. You know, and that's the thing about Calvin when I was reading the Institutes, you know, which is a big, the biggest irony for me is that, like, the first entire part of Calvin is where he's addressing the human condition is um, basically a like a a biblical commentary of Cicero's on the gods. I mean that's basically how it is. It's like a theological anthropology, and you know, and he just throws in scripture every now and then to justify his readings of like you know you know predestination that kind of thing. And but when you get into like you know the the idea of interpretation and all that is it, just I don't know man it just. It just boggles my mind how, like, even in the institutes, Calvin. Like, I think I mentioned this before. Even in the, I have the 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 large edition of the, not just the condensed one, but I have the two volume full edition of the the underbridge. And Marcos, you know, reading through that, it's so funny. In the introduction, can, yes. Can you repeat that? We uh, kind Hello? of lost you. Oh, okay. No, I'm just saying that you know. I, since I own, you know, I have the the complete edition of the Institutes, the uh, the two volume unabridged edition. It's so funny to see every now and then, or not even in the introduction, that Calvin himself likes to quote scripture um, ad sensum rather than verbatim. So he's going to quote scripture in the sense that is intended rather than what scripture actually says. And some every now and then you have like the actual quotation of the scripture. Uh, below the footnote uh, in the footnote so i'm like okay that goes to speak on james's point about the legal ties to it that it's more about the interpretation than it is about the actual like letter of what it says Mm. and that to me reminds me a lot of legalese and i deal a lot of with that in work that i do um so that absolutely does make sense and, you know, I think what it is, is, and, and we both know that these men, especially 
and from when I was reading some biographies of Calvin, and and this much was also true from Luther, just from just knowing about him, is that they were they reversed on on scrupulosity, um, to a great deal, and especially with, uh, you know how, I think I also had to deal with the culture because like what we were saying earlier, you know, like, you know, there's a few people in the church that were making the church look bad, the ones that were actually trying to profit from indulgences, the ones that were trying to do all these terrible things. I, the, the one thing I remember reading about Calvin is that when he was at the Sorbonne, uh, he had a lot of theologians trying to twist things in weird scholastic arguments that were, in a sense, heretical. And then he overreacted to that because he believed that what they were teaching was what the church teaches abroad and everywhere else. And so that's why he launched his attack against the church in France. Then he was booted out by the king, and then he went to Geneva. So, but it's, I don't, and, you know, the thing is, though, like, how is it that all this is localized on, centralized on one person, one figure? You know, that's the biggest irony to me. Because when you look at the church, you have the tradition of the church fathers. It's plural. You know, you have the councils, and yet, in Protestantism, it's all about the big name that you're you're following or the tradition you're following. Now, God, God forbid you call it tradition, you know, like, you know, meet some evangelicals and they're like, oh. Or or when like John, when the Calvinist calls a Catholic <laughs> anti, anti-Calvinist and I want to look at him, no, no. Oh, yeah. We're Catholic. You're anti-Catholic. That's your whole <laughs> right. I mean, Yeah, I, I actually put a poll. We have a discussion group we're part of. I put a poll up, got interesting results. Where I asked. Is, is there a default form of Christianity, whether you think that default form is right or not, that, you know, people should be comparing themselves against? And I, I expected to be told, no, there is no default Christianity, because it's, it's a group that leads very heavily uh, evangelical and such. Uh, but no, I, I got a fairly strong response back that, yes, there is a default form of Christianity. It's my form, which included a lot of weird little things where it's like, okay, I, I barely know what your group believes, what claim do you have to be the default, but, you know, that's the mentality, is not, you're part of a tradition that goes back to the apostles, but rather you exist in opposition to me. And that's the thing that drives me nuts, is, is a man-made version of Christianity that's diverting from the tradition. It is about some individual. Whether you are devoted to the commentaries of some reformer, or you are just so narrowly looking at just one author of biblical writings, usually St. Paul, or fundamentally the thing where the authority is me. Like you always see some combination of those things going on. And it, it's crazy because it, it, it's almost like there's an idea of. Things that should be, and in reality, are bodies, are treated as sets. And this is very much something that the canon is all about. Now, mm -hmm. when I use those terms, I mean, like, a body is a coherent whole that works together. The whole is more than right. some of the parts. A set is just, there are these items, they're associated in some way, but they're not necessarily uh, connected what they do not, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with each other. They're just kind of grouped together. And for a lot of people, I think they think of the church as a set of all believers. And the canon, the Bible, is a set 
of writings, or even worse, a set of sayings. And so therefore, I as a member of this set, I have the same authority as any other member of the set, right? We're all just members of the set. And well, looking at the scriptures, well, you know, it, it's just a set of writings. So I'll pick a writing out of there. Wow, this really speaks to me. I'm convinced that X, Y, Z. And so you as a member of what in your mind is a set, treat the scriptures as just a set. And so you have an individual picking out a small selection and then saying, hey, the rest of you, screw you, I figured it out. When in reality, like the scriptures, the canon, that's a body. That is a whole text that historically was written in pieces, but was assembled into a whole because it all upholds a common doctrine and a common belief. And what embodies that belief and that doctrine? The body of Christ, not the set of Christ, not the association of Christ, mm -hmm. the body of Christ, a real mystical which includes a visible reality. We don't want to be Gnostic here. We don't want to be docetists saying the body of Christ is some phantom out in the ether. <laughs> a real whole, a binding whole, a whole of which you are a cell. Every cell is important. I mean, Paul makes this, this, this point, and it's one body with many parts. You, you don't get to say, well, I don't need the body. The body doesn't matter because, you know, I'm just so important as the pinky nail or whatever it may be. Likewise, the Bible, where people treat it as not, oh, here's a coherent canon, but here's a set of writings I can pick and choose from according to what authority I recognize it. It's just I, 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 I. You know what? That, that's how man fell. I, 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 I. I want to be like a god. I want to do this. I want to do that. And that's the thing that's going to keep you from being saved in a lot of cases. I, I don't, I, I don't want to repent. I, 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 I. What's all this talk about God? You're, you're importing that attitude into the faith. That's a dangerous thing. So the body gives us a body. Stick to both. End of question. Yeah. Well, I think we've we've pretty much covered as much as we can tonight. Um, Do you guys have any closing remarks? I already gave my closing remarks. <laughs> And then some, probably. <laughs> what about you, Marcus? I'm, I'll just say that, you know, we have to understand. I think it's just a question. I mean, not even a question. It's just knowing the basic history of how the Bible came about through its councils, through the formulation of the the canon that we all know and love that has was sustained for 1,500 years. And, of course, you know, our Oriental Orthodox brothers and sisters kind of ventured out a little bit. Um, crazy. but then you had, <laughs> then you have, uh, but you know, the Eastern Orthodox and ourselves, you know, held, held the line for a while. And then of course, I don't know why the reformers and the wisdom or, or foolishness more likely, uh, believed that the Masoretic text was su superior to the, uh, Septuagint, which was what was used by the church fathers, by the apostles and more than likely probably Jesus himself. And, uh, you know, just we need to understand that, you know, just because, you know, it's always interesting how just because we have to specify a difference between these books in the Bible, like, oh, the deuterocanonical or, oh, my goodness, the my Siri started to talk about. Me. OK, 
sorry about that. Uh, you know, the, the whole idea of the, you know, like, oh, no, they're actually apocrypha. You know, like, oh, yeah, the Book of Tobit's apocrypha, sure. Um, you know, all these other other weird ramblings. And I don't know, I just I just find it like, you know, we, we know deep in our hearts the reason why those books were removed is because they were the most explicit in justifying Catholic doctrine. And um, the thing is, is that, well, if, you know, if the Holy Spirit guided the councils, gave us the books of the Bible, and we had to put our foot down in the Council of Trent just to reaffirm what we have affirmed for like centuries, you know, I think that we were pretty consistent and everyone else kind of fell apart. But now, now we live in the, the new dark ages where anyone can have their own canon and add their own scriptures to the Bible. You know, you can have your Pearl of Great Price and among other things if you really wanted to. But um, at the end of the day, though, just may, may we all be united in the living love of Christ and, and come to know that the true church is the one which was established ever so long ago and which has held the line for for centuries now and centuries to come. Well, as always, feel free to reach out to us at info at catholicparadox.com for any questions or show ideas. Uh, we hope to see you soon. Have a great week.